Presented by the United States Sentencing Commission, this is Sentencing Practice Talk, a regular podcast for federal sentencing practitioners covering topics of interest. Here is your host, Rachel Pierce. Good morning and welcome to Sentencing Practice Talk. I'm Rachel Pierce, one of the hosts uh, of our uh, Sentencing Practice Talk podcast series. We're gonna do something a little bit different this morning, um, similar to what Ebisay and Krista did with the series on the categorical approach. We're gonna do a three-part series on emerging technologies. So this morning, I am joined by my colleague, Pete. Pete Madsen, good morning, welcome. We're happy to have you here. Great to be here. Um, Like I said, we're gonna do this three-part series. The first part, we're gonna discuss a little bit about the dark web. Now, you have been doing the breakout session at our national seminar on emerging technologies for how many years now? Uh, a couple years now. A couple years now. So yeah. you've got more, I dare say you've got more experience <laughs> and more knowledge than maybe the rest of us in ESP do, which is why you're sort of our little resident expert on these subjects. Um, as I mentioned, our first series, we're gonna talk a little bit about the dark web or the deep web. Um, I've heard of it, but I'm not that familiar with it. I, okay. I guess I became familiar with it a little more intimately a few years back when I worked on some child pornography issues. Sure. But why don't you tell us a little bit about the dark web and what it is? Well, the dark web is actually part of the internet that isn't visible to regular search engines such as you know when you Google something or you use Yahoo or Bing. And actually, uh, in order to actually access the dark web, you need uh, a, a special browser, uh, an anonymizing browser, actually. Mm, okay. Let me give you an example. So attached in this podcast, we have a, uh, a handout that shows an iceberg. What you see is approximately 10% of the iceberg sticking out of the water. Mm-hmm. That's the Yahoo, the Google, the Bing. That's the typical stuff you can search and find on the Internet. However, underneath the surface is the deep web. The deep web is not accessible using regular search engines, nor is the content indexed there either. This is where like your medical records, your credit card information, a lot of academic information, and and even some government resources are actually there too. In order to gain access to that deep web, you typically need to know the exact URL or IP address, and in most cases, a password. Mm -hmm. So if I'm gonna try and Google your financial information, Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna find that using Google, Yahoo, and Bing. I'm actually gonna have to go to, you know, wellsfargo.com and type in a password and username and sometimes a PIN number to get access to that actual deep web. Hmm. Now, the bottom part of the iceberg is actually where the dark web is. This is the the very bottom. The very bottom where it's kind of (laughs) dark. This is the part of the internet that's only accessible using that specific browser. And together, the deep web and the dark web actually make up about 90% of the content on the internet. Wow. So that whole phrase, tip of the iceberg, is literally that. (laughs) Right. I think this was surprising to me, too, to realize that what you see and what you Google, it seems so so massive, it but does. It, it's only 10% or so of what you actually have on the internet. I think that's really great analogy, and I'm glad that you referenced uh, the, I guess the one pager or whatever, the, the visual aspect of <laughs> right. our iceberg analogy uh, that is attached to this podcast. That's a really cool analogy. So you mentioned uh, that it requires an anonymous browser. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Right, so the most common anonymous browser is actually called a Tor browser. Mm-hmm. And Tor actually stands for the onion router. What the Tor network does, it actually disguises your identity by moving your internet traffic across different Tor servers. 
and it encrypts that traffic so it can't be traced back to you. In essence, it kind of makes you anonymous. Hmm. Um, it's actually a free download at www.torproject.org. <laughs> I'm not advocating for you going to the Tor, but um, it's certainly there for anybody uh, to it's use. It's accessible. Absolutely. Right, okay. Absolutely. So who created the tour? You know, that's a really good question. I think when I started doing research on this, I'm like, oh, it's got to be some, you know, secret squirrel group or something like that. But in fact, it was actually developed by uh, the United States Navy as a way to protect their intelligence communications. Oh, well, that makes sense. Okay, so you mentioned that you wouldn't advertise or, or encourage <laughs> people to go to this free download. Right. So does that mean that the Tor browser is illegal? It's funny you ask that, but no. Um, but you can do illegal things there, such as buying and selling drugs, credit card information, child pornography, online passwords, um, hacker tools. But you can also do legal things there, such as join a chess club, or uh, a chess club, I'm sorry, or Black Book. And Black Book is what, in, es in essence, is kind of the Facebook of Tor. Um, although the exact percentage is unknown, um, the vast majority of what occurs on the dark web is, is probably illegal. Now, this is going to be a silly question, but do they call it Black Book because of the dark web analogy? You know, that's a really good question. I think you're probably true, but I don't know for sure. Okay, okay. So can you give us uh, some more specific examples of maybe some of the illegal conduct that goes on in the dark web? Sure. I think a lot of our listeners might be or might recall Operation Pacifier or what the FBI actually called was their playpen investigation. Uh, playpen at the time was the world's most notorious child pornography website on the dark web. I think what made it so difficult for the uh, FBI to investigate was that Playpen was hosted on the dark web and only accessible using the Tor browser. Mm. And as we mentioned <laughs> earlier, it's very difficult to track criminals or anybody for that matter on the dark web. Uh, when the FBI finally shut down uh, Playpen in February 2015, the site had over 215,000 worldwide users wow. and hosted more than 23,000 sexually explicit images and videos of children. Wow, and as I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, that was my introduction to the dark right. web was was right. through you know unfortunately through the world child, of child pornography, right. right? So obviously the dark web is very enticing for anyone who's interested in criminal activity. Right. Uh, so tell us why someone would use the tour for any other reason. Right. I think you have a lot of people that um, actually just want to use it for you know to be anonymous. They want to be able to surf the internet anonymously. And I think uh, most security websites estimate that use at approximately 5% or so. Hmm. Um, people simply don't want other people to know what sites they go to, um, where they're going on the internet. And as I noted earlier, the Tor, in essence, anonymizes your IP address by concealing your location, by sending it through, you have all these different servers. I think at any given point, there's about 7,000 different internet relays out there, thus making it nearly impossible to track any one person. Yeah, obviously a lot of layers to that. Very true. So let's go back to the criminal activity. Uh, you mentioned that many of the crimes committed involve the sale of drugs or guns or personal information, that right. type of thing. Uh, can you tell us about how maybe the guidelines might play into sentencing for these offenses? That's another good uh, series of questions. The guidelines actually come into account in a lot of different cases. So we'll start with, uh, I guess, the fraud cases. So a lot of these mm -hmm. convictions are under 18 U.S.C. 1030. That'll take you to 2B1.1. What's that computer crime fraud, right? Computer Statue. crimes, mm -hmm. hacking, okay. a lot, a lot yep. of that different type of uh, computer uh, criminal activity, I guess. Under 2B1.1, B10C, mm -hmm. if the offense involved sophisticated means and the defendant intentionally engaged in or caused the conduct constituting sophisticated means, there's a two-level increase. 
Mm-hmm. Um, each case certainly is going to be unique, and just because the offense incurred or involved the dark web, that in of itself does not necessarily mean it's sophisticated. It's what you do there in the dark web or on the dark web that actually potentially makes it sophisticated. Okay, that makes sense. In drug cases, uh, 2D1.1B7, if the defendant distributed a controlled substance through mass marketing by means of an interactive computer service, we have another two-level increase. Uh, Pursuant to 2D1.1 App Note 13, this enhancement typically applies or was meant to apply to individuals who operate a website to promote the sale of a controlled substance. Um, This is often what drug dealers do on the dark web. They simply create a website and offer their drugs for sale. If any of our listeners were at the the last national convention, one of our guest speakers actually had gone on the dark web the night before his presentation and pulled up a couple of different screenshots where you could buy LSD and some Oxycontin and stuff. So this is certainly still happening out there. Yeah, yeah. In child pornography offenses, uh, specifically under 2G2.2B3B, if the defendant distributed in exchange for valuable consideration but not necessarily for pecuniary gain, increased by five levels. Mm -hmm. In a lot of child pornography offenses on the dark web, defendants are actually buying faster access to be able to download more illegal images and videos. Mm -hmm. Finally, in money laundering cases, most often found at 2S1.1, the specific offense characteristic under 2S1.1B3 states if the offense involves sophisticated laundering, increased by two levels. So in some cases, defendants have opened their own money servicing businesses where they exchange cash for bitcoins. Oftentimes the money is routed from one bitcoin account to another, and sometimes to offshore accounts in foreign countries. That can make tracking the money very difficult. Again, the unique circumstances of each case will require some investigation. Okay, so obviously it implicates several, potentially, Chapter 2 guidelines. Very true. What about any Chapter 3 adjustments that we might need to be aware of? Right. Uh, I think in every case, you should at least evaluate the use of a special skill adjustment Mm. at 3B1.1. Okay. Uh, Well, I mentioned anybody can get on the dark web. I mean, I just, in essence, told you how to get to the dark (laughs) web by downloading the Tor browser. Um, It's what you do there, necessarily, that actually makes it, you know, whether or not using a special skill or not. I think as far as ways to hide your activity? Right. I okay. mean, if you're on the dark web, obviously you're hidden, but mm-hmm. using a special skill. So in order for that enhancement to actually apply, the special skill must be used in a manner that, quote unquote, significantly facilitated the commissioner concealment of the offense. Okay. Could you give us an example? You know, I think that's probably better to give you an example. Um, a lot of the computer cases we reviewed, a defendant was not only on the dark web, but then able to hack into various websites and computer networks to steal credit card information. That takes skill. It's one thing to get to the dark web, but Mm -hmm. once you get there, to actually hack into a site or a network and actually steal the information that's, in essence, hidden from view, that takes a little bit of skill. Um, In addition, some hackers are actually able to download various tools that can scan the credit card numbers they stole to ensure that they were indeed valid and could be used for illegal purposes. Although some defendants, or maybe most defendants for, from my experience, have argued that they had no formal education or specialized training, the courts have actually upheld the increase for defendants who are self-taught and have a very high and unusual level of computer know-how. Mm. So the courts have deemed that sufficient to warrant an increase for abuse of a special skill. Oftentimes the defendant's own self-tutelage and experience are uh, key components in that determination as well. Okay. Well, thank you very much for giving us that information on the dark web. I certainly learned more than I knew before. (laughs) Great. Um, And we appreciate you being there. Great. Thank you. Thanks.
This wraps up our episode of Sentencing Practice Talk, today brought to you by the United States Sentencing Commission. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check back often for new topics. Sentencing Practice Talk, a regular podcast on federal sentencing issues. Please be advised that information provided by the Commission staff is offered to assist in understanding and applying the sentencing guidelines. The information does not necessarily represent the official position of the Commission, should not be considered definitive, and is not binding upon the Commission, the Court, or the parties in any case. Thank you.